Okay, I should be live right now. Lights, action, camera, everything but graphics. In case you're wondering, um, we're going the anti-YouTuber route, and you won't be seeing any graphics on your screen. They take a lot of work and a lot of money to produce, and we're just doing the quick dance here. So we're going to the opposite direction. Everybody here is piling on the graphics, and we're cutting them all out. So anyway, so got a lot to unpack here today. <laughs> um let me explain a little bit here first. And I'm going to kind of wander around and I'll try to keep my notes away from the microphone so that I won't be racking your ears out. Um, why am I talking today about the Titanic? Well, that's a very good question because Andy and I have been, he's been doing all the coding on these things. So I'm not really sure how we ended up on the Titanic, but it ends up to be fairly interesting. And there's also some very interesting things about the Titanic I'd like to talk about today. This theory about women and children first. There is a guy named Ballard, B-A-L-L-A-R-D, who discovered the Titanic. Also, what really grabbed our attention was the fact that it was discovered by the U.S. military. Imagine that. The U.S. military found the Titanic. What were they doing there? Well, who knows? We'll figure that out as I go along here. So pull up a chair. This is going to be a kind of a, I'm going to try to unpack it in a way that doesn't make your head spin, okay? So also the Titanic answers this question about that unsinkable Molly Brown. <laughs> she was in boat six. <laughs> I swear, some of this stuff, um, when the show notes come out, you'll want to take a look at them because I captured the guy who saw the iceberg. <laughs> Anyways, just read his story and take a look for yourself. Anyhow, so yeah, so let's start off. So what happened was, was that we were talking about the Strategic Air Command. Why, I don't really remember exactly, but the Strategic Air Command was the, ba the outfit that my father was um, assigned to. So I grew up around, they call it SAC, S-A-C. I think it might mean SAC for sacrifice, but we'll get to that later. That's kind of what something Andy will probably sort out in a bit. But anyway, so SAC is a pretty important part of this thing. And I don't know, after my father retired from the military, he was pretty young, he then took a job for the SAC division up in Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. And during that time, it was about the space, <laughs> you know, the fake space deal, right? So he worked there until that division of SAC closed down. And then I found out that SAC is back up and operating again in a really big way. So we were wandering around looking at why did the military find the Titanic and why, how did this all tie into Cuba and people wearing wigs? <laughs> well, it's a long, windy trail. So buckle up. So anyway, so SAC basically is the military force of everything beyond the Navy, okay? So SAC's deal, they have a few different missions. One is the um, space deal, which that's not true, right? The other is the nuclear deal, also not true. So then we started wondering, well, what is SAC up to? <laughs> Because they're not doing two out of three of their missions, right? So that's how we started just wandering around here and ended up going in a million different directions. So anyway, so then we got on to this Titanic thing because the military, the Navy, was the one who discovered the, the Titanic again. So anyhow, so follow along here. Let me get first to the part that got me interested in this. Well, there was one headline that got us interested, and it said, 
Titanic was found during secret Cold War Navy mission. <laughs> well, that was kind of an opening thing here. Now, remember, of course, I knew that Titanic existed. I'm 70 years old. It wasn't. <laughs> it was probably close to being alive by the time it happened. But anyway, so, yeah, I didn't know any of these key little details here. So it was kind of interesting. So while Andy's working on the coding, I thought this week we'll talk about the Titanic. We'll talk about what in the heck's up with Cuba, which is a fascinating part of this whole thing is Cuba. And why are these people all bald? And <laughs> what does hair mean? So anyway, so let's start off about this women and children first thing, because, you know, I've always heard that thing. And I heard it came from the Titanic that there was this push to get the women and children off the boat. Well, first of all, the boat didn't happen, right? So they did a study. Now, remember, just like Bob Hare did the study of the psychopaths, whoops, <laughs> they, they do these studies. So they did a study recently in Stockholm about this women and children first thing, okay, that came off the Titanic. And it was out of Stockholm. And it said, 100 years ago, 100 years after the Titanic sank, two Swedish researchers on Thursday said, when it comes to sinking ships, male chivalry is a myth, and more men generally survive such disasters than women and children. Economists, I can't pronounce these names, Mikkel, they're, they're from Sweden, and Oscar of the Uppsala University also showed in their 82, <laughs> everything's always 82, right, page study, that captains and their crew are 18.7 percentage points more likely to survive a shipwreck than their passengers. <laughs> so they, they concluded with, our findings show that behavior in life and death situations is best captured by the expression, every man for himself, the authors wrote. Well, this is how they think, okay, because I would like to think that if it was one of us and the boat was really going down, that we would show some concern for others. So and they just want to implant. I, I think back then they were implanting in their minds that they're that their big concern is women and children. If you look at this Afghan thing, it's all about women and children. Well, why didn't they think about the women and children 20 years ago is my question. So anyway, so this discovery of the Titanic gets to be really interesting here. Okay. In 1985, it stemmed from a secret U.S. Navy investigation of two wrecked nuclear submarines, according to the oceanographer who found the infamous ocean liner. They always call these boats she's too, right? She went down in the freezing waters of the North Atlantic, 375 miles from Newfoundland, in just two hours and 40 minutes. She carried 2,224 passengers and crew, but had lifeboats for only 1,178 people, slightly more than half. 1,514 people died. Now, remember, nobody died, so I'm not laughing at people really dying, okay? I'm la These numbers are just so concocted, okay? It was a, and this is their writing, I'm just reading. <laughs> it was a human disaster on a colossal scale. But it's also a story with strong links to the history of Lloyd's, one of their crooks in time, right? Where the ship was insured for over $1 million. That was $1 million back in the early 1900s, okay? At the time of the disaster, the market and the media was still in the early stages of using wireless telegraphy to communicate with ships at sea. Lloyd's was a significant contributor to the new technology. And with the help of inventor Gugolio Marconi, <laughs> had set up signal stations from Cornwall to Canada so that vessels crossing the Atlantic could communicate with land. Boy, that's good to know, right? And some during that time actually thought 
the great ship had survived because of this communication issues getting back and forth. Lloyd's had a signal station in Halifax. Enter the Scots. Do do do. Nova Scotia was called Cape Race <laughs> and was the first to hear the news that the ship was sinking. Other signal stations issued conflicting reports, resulting in great confusion. Two days later, some newspapers still thought the Titanic had survived and was being towed to Halifax. Lloyd's, however, understood the situation. Underwriters began to trade overdue insurance, a form of reinsurance commonly purchased after a marine incident. (laughs) The Chicago Record-Herald of 16 October conveyed the market's heightened emotion under the headline, Lloyd's near to panic. (laughs) Exiting scenes were witnessed at Lloyd's underwriting room yesterday. Insurance losses in the last six months have been unparalleled in the history of Lloyd's in liners of the biggest class. Both the Delphi and the Oceana have been wrecked. And now comes the disaster of the Titanic. And they called it at the time a prestigious risk. Okay. Just remember, sing that song, Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves, as I'm reading this. Okay. Back on 9 January, broker Willis Faber and company had come to Lloyd's underwriting room to ensure the Titanic and her sister ship, the Olympic. This is where it gets good because they get them confused at some point here, okay? On behalf of the white star lines. <laughs> I don't know. We're only whites allowed. <laughs> it is considered a prestigious risk with cover for the whole loan standing at $1 million, around $95 million in today's money. A lot of money, right? Numerous Lloyd syndicates put their names on the slip, covering amounts ranging from 10000 to It was like a betting game, right? Willis was able to negotiate a favorable premium for his proudly unsinkable vessel of 7500 That's where the unsinkable comes in, right? So anyway, so everybody's – see, this is how they play the stock market. It's really a big betting game, right? I, I believe, and this is only my belief, that insurance <laughs> run by these people is pretty much run the same way, Okay, okay. So, despite the high level of claims arising from the tragedy, insurers paid out within 30 days. <laughs> Glad that took place. <laughs> That's why I think when they're doing all these things within Congress and it takes them months to decide, I think they're in the back room cutting up who's going to get what. But you'll have to excuse me. I'm a little bit suspect of psychopaths. <laughs> so, okay, so from Lloyd's perspective, the Titanic will long be remembered as one of the market's biggest losses alongside major natural and man-made catastrophes, such as the loss of the HMS Luton, L-U-T-I-N-E, in 19, excuse me, 1799, the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, and more recently 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, and the Japanese earthquake and Tusami of 2011. So those are the big deals that they've kind of focused on. And I would venture to say all of those were probably created by these people. But, you know, you'll have to let me know in the comments. I'm just a little bit on the suspect side right now. So it's a historic, I'm reading on from them. It's a historical irony that the most famous ship to ever sail was famous because it sank. (laughs) But it was a case of the RMS Titanic. Um, because they were bragging before the ship sailed that it was unsinkable. <laughs> I'm, I don't know if they were bragging on purpose, but it's kind of funny, right? So then the world's largest and most luxurious cruise liner, it hit an iceberg on its maiden voyage early in the morning of 15 April 1912. 
probably has to be coded like heck. But Andy's working on a lot of this stuff. But if any of you have any ideas, these codes, or you want to do a show about it, please, you're welcome. We're a little bit busy over here. So always about the threes, right? Titanic was one of three Olympic-class ocean liners built at the Harland and Wolf shipyards in Belfast. That's W-O-L-F-F. I really wasn't barking like a dog. The other two being the RMS Britannica and the RMS Olympic. So it's the Britannic and the Olympic, okay, built at the Wolf shipyards in Belfast. So the Olympic, this is where it gets to be a little bit tricky here, okay, the Olympic was launched a year before the Titanic, but seemed to share most more famous shifters' poor luck. So the Olympic also had bad luck, just like the Titanic. Imagine that, right? So within months of its launch in 1911, it had two serious collisions. I think we're talking about the Olympic here, right? Okay, so because the Titanic was on its maiden voyage. The second with... Royal Navy cruisers, they got in a, the, the Olympic got in a crash with the Royal Navy cruiser, the HMS Hawk, off the coast of Isle of Wight, W-I-G-H-T, that's that place where the tax fair, I think, causing serious structural damage to the Olympic's keel and steel beams. This is where the plot is being set up. Now, how these things work is they set up these little plot lines, okay? Now, I think a lot of these plot lines just happen because they're careless losers, but so what happens is out of these plot lines, comes a lot of areas for people to dig in and find problems, right? So their crazy lack of details creates a lot of openings for people to write a lot of books, say this wasn't wrong. And look, you know, over a hundred years later, they're still talking about it. <laughs> still, still talking about it, right? So, um, so the Olympic gets in this crash with the Royal Navy. Okay. So some authors have suggested that the damage to the Olympic was more serious than admitted. In fact, it was virtually a write-off. So what they're saying is that this little crash with the Navy pretty much disabled the Atlantic. And repairs would be ruinously expensive, running into millions of pounds. The already troubled White Star Line was facing a potential financial disaster. So they started questioning. They said, could the White Star and its owner, J.P. Morgan, yeah, lots of reasons to be suspect here, right? Could they have devised an audacious insurance scam to try and salvage their investment in the troubled Olympic line? Now, get the money back from the Olympic by tanking the Titanic. <laughs> These people must really be up odd hours figuring this stuff out. So they, then they were questioning, could White Star and its owner, J.P. Morgan, have devised an audacious insurance scam to try and salvage their investment? The Olympic, the theory goes, would be swapped with the Titanic and sunk in a staged accident. The Titanic, now disguised as the Olympic, would then carry on in service. So, the two ships were essentially identical, save for minor differences, and were moored side by side in dry dock. The swap would entail nothing more elaborate than swapping a few nameplates and plaques. <laughs> Many of the richest and most prestigious names in the early 20th centuries were booked into the Titanic. And here again, um, here again, the um, Titanic is being able to take off. And what they're saying about the Titanic is that they had a couple of people that I want to talk about here for the Titanic. One is the industrialist Henry Clay Frick and his wife. But the interesting person about the Titanic was this person. Um, it was a pretty famous industrialist. I have those in the show notes. But 
here, let me finish up here with how the Titanic was discovered after the wreck, okay? It was discovered by Robert Ballard, B-A-L-L-A-R-D, in 1985. And some evidence from the wreck supports the switch theory. But I'm not going to get too crazy about this stuff because this stuff could go on for days here. But this is what's interesting here is in the summer of 1985, Ballard was aboard. Now, Ballard was in the Navy at this time. He was an officer in the Navy. So he was aboard this French research ship called La Surette, S-U-R-O-I-T. And he was using this scanner to search for, there's two different reports. One is that Ballard was looking for these other two submarines, and he just happened to find the Titanic. Okay, so Ballard supposedly finds this stuff. But what happened was Ballard had been looking into the Titanic for quite a while here. So they had been looking into this, supposedly, for years. And then all of a sudden, this Ballard guy finds the Titanic. So Ballard is only interesting because... I'm sure he's an agent, right? And he went on to, um, he's pretty famous now. He started this program called the Jason Project, some educational program to get to young minds now. He went on to be a pro- prolific writer, describing his expeditions in a number of books and articles. He had come up with this thing called the Argo that he has used to search for the Titanic. So he ends up being kind of an interesting person here. He's still alive, by the way. And his wife was a, or still is, a producer for the um, Discovery Channel. And he has a son named Doug Ballard, who is also an actor who played in The Decent Descent, Part 2, The Dark Knight, and The O.C. So, later video revealed that the Titanic was lying in two pieces, with the whole upright and largely intact. So Ballard then returned to the site in 86, okay, with a underwater wreckage. But what's happened since then, which is pretty interesting, is they had a stamp number 401, okay. That was the ID used for the Titanic at Harland and Wolf. So they go through all these contortions over what boat it is. I don't think any of that matters because they were looking at initials, M's, and P's having to do with all those people. But I don't think any of that happens. I think that basically it was a insurance scam. And what the early report said was that insurance scams and marine time fraud were common at the time of the Titanic sinking. So there you go. So this was just all a matter of a fraud, right? So you know, they can go on and on all they want about what ship is what ship, and it makes for crazy script writing, but none of that really matters, right? So let's get to the couple of players here that were kind of interesting. Um, so, yeah, so I don't know who all these people are. I'm sure this was all made up, and it was described as unsinkable, which is pretty true, and um, they, they described it as a freak set of circumstances managed to sink it. <laughs> that was probably not true. And they questioned, could plotters really have engineered something so complex as a sinking of the world's largest vessel in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean? I don't know. You have to let me know in the comments. I'm pretty suspicious. So, yeah, so I think that uh, the name Titanic derives from the titans of Greek mythology built in Belfast, Ireland, in the United Kingdom. So it comes from the U.K. Um, It was the first of three boats. So they got those threes there, right? It was found by the U.S. military. We've got the French. We've got the Scots. Um, they were heading to the United States, and they were heading to New York. So that means they'd be heading toward the Statue of Liberty, which was a gift to this country from France. 
And I don't know. I think that the um, everything is the opposite. I think everything is the opposite. The Statue of Liberty says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. I think it should say welcome to the horror show, but I will leave that up to you in the comments. And I will talk just real briefly about this Margaret Brown. She's a pretty interesting gal. These were the two main characters out of this um, Titanic thing. And remember, tons of books, tons of movies. And they also have um, all these exhibitions. They keep finding new treasures, lots and lots and lots of money. And then, of course, their friends at the Antiques Roadshow help pump all this stuff up, right? So there's just two interesting characters here I'll cover at the very end here now. The um, the first, the American businessman, builder, and investor was a descendant of the first multimillionaire in the United States. A German-American, Astor was his name. He was the richest person aboard the Titanic and was traveling with his second wife, Madeline, who was five months pregnant. Astor did not survive the sinking of the Titanic, but his wife did. According to survivor accounts, Astor was last seen on the starboard wing of the boat smoking a cigarette with Jacques Frutel. Astor's body was recovered on April 22. You want to go over to the Le Naturel side about what the 2-2 means. By a cable ship chartered by White Star Line. So White Star Line sent out these uh, charter ships to try to look for uh, bodies. So he was identified by the initial sewn into the label of his jacket. So that's how they found Astor. Astor probably owed a lot of people a lot of money, and this was the escape hatchet, right? So one other piece of history that's kind of interesting, and then we'll close for now. Margaret Brown, interesting gal. That's where that whole, that whole deal about the unsinkable Molly Brown came from. She was a uh, she was born in 1867. She was a philanthropist and activist who gained a great deal of fame during the sinking of the Titanic. People used to also get paid and get um, have people line up to share their interviews with their time on the Titanic. And all those lovely older people you see from the UK talking about being on the Titanic, they're all lying to you, okay? So anyway, so let's get back to Margaret here. After boarding Lifeboat 6, of course it had to be 6, right? She returned to the sinking ship to look for other survivors. Quite a gal, huh? She gets in this lifeboat six and she hops back over the boat. It is not known whether or not any victims were rescued upon return. But after the event, she became known as the unsinkable Molly Brown. In her later life, she became an activist for a number of causes, including women's and workers' rights, children's education, historical preservation, and recognizing bravery of all board the Titanic. During the last years of her life, she became an actress. Margaret Brown died in 1932. So there you go. That's our upcap for this week. I'll be back in a few days to talk about wigs and hair and all this kind of stuff. And then hopefully this background stuff will help you when we get to what Andy's doing as far as the coding and whatnot, because it's a long, windy path. So we thought we would just do a couple of quick updates here along the way here and see how much we can kind of try to unpack. And I don't mean for it to sound confusing. It is a lot to unpack. So whatever questions you have will certainly be in the comments to try to help with them because um, this is just 
a little tiny bit of where we've been going this last week. So I'm just trying to put some context into it. So anyway, so be safe out there and I will chat with you in the comments. Goodbye for now. And the show notes will also be in the comments. Thank <laughs> you.